everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Programmatic Digest podcast. I am your host, Ellen Parker. I'm excited for our guest today is Anne Frisbee. She runs the global enterprise at, at, at Swiss. Did I butcher it again? Did I butcher <laughs> well, it again? <laughs> yeah, I just run the global enterprise business at Swiss. There you go. There you go. There you go. Well, I'm not going to edit that out because it is just how it is, you know. Um, but, um, Anne, thank you for joining us. We're excited to have you here. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's great to be here, especially coming to the end of 2023. So nice time to chat with you. Yes. And, you know, I'm particularly excited to talk to you because I didn't have, I don't have a lot of guests that work on um, the audio piece, the streaming audio piece. And so I am super honored that you made time for us today. I think most of the conversation is going to just revolve around, um, you know, the perspective on on that space, because we're on the buy side. Most of our listeners are on the buy side. Some of them are on the sell side. But I don't think we really, for real, for real, get what's really going on when we talk about, oh, how to set up a deal with um, all your streaming partners or how to how is AdWiz representing their, their content creators and things like that. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. But first thing first, I do want to know who Anne is. So take a few minutes to let us know how you landed in programmatic per se. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a great thing to look back on. I've been in the digital media space now for 27 years, since 1996. Wow. So I, I graduated from college and I worked initially at Goldman Sachs doing investment banking work. Um, but while I was there, I actually saw the internet for the first time. This is around 1995, 1996, uh -huh. and left the company to start an internet startup, which I knew nothing about. <laughs> uh, and in fact, I mean, if you want to know the truth, I met two guys sitting in my kitchen at about three in the morning that were friends, <laughs> friends of my roommate. And they said, oh, we just quit our jobs at GE and Ziff Davis, and we're going to start an internet company. I said, oh, that's great. I just quit too. Let's start together. <laughs> so we started a company in 1996. We were trying to be essentially CNET. It didn't really work out, but we learned a lot in that path. And I've never gone back. I, I think um, digital media is an amazing space to work and have your career. The thing I've liked about it unlike I think a lot of other jobs, honestly, is it is constantly changing. Uh, and I mean, if you want that, then come do digital media. If you <laughs> want to change, yeah, like not do it. Uh, but I've really been fortunate because I think all, a lot of the major changes in the industry I've been able to participate in from the very, very beginning. I, I worked on search marketing before Google had begun its search marketing ads campaigns. Uh -huh. um, I started working in mobile in 2008 when the iPhone launched. Mm -hmm. And I launched a, a mobile video exchange at Inmobi in 2014 time period. So it was really new and people understanding how to do full screen videos that were pre-cached and you know, enabled a buffer free experience and to buy them programmatically. So that was actually one of the best, most fun I had. And then in 2020 in COVID, I came over to AdsWiz to work on digital audio. And that was a big shift for me. I moved from more the core media side of the business to 
the SaaS platform ad tech side of the business. And I moved obviously from mobile video into digital audio. And it has been really a great change. And now I spend a lot of time working on the AdsWiz marketplace and our own programmatic stack for our our publishing partner. So it's been it's been pretty fun to now work on programmatic, but in a different area of digital media. Right. I was going to ask you, what was the biggest shift between like running in Mobi and running, um, you know, um, running uh, at, at Swiss? Like, obviously, in Mobi, very mobile, very, you know, supply. And now you're like, what is like, help us understand the biggest differences for us buyers? Yeah, so it's interesting. I, I would describe Imobi actually as very demand centric. It really was built initially on really working with major advertisers, understanding their needs across both direct response and and brand side of the business, and building platforms for those those advertisers. Ads was, on the other hand, is really always been a very publisher centric DNA. While we have a DSP. It's mm-hmm. predominantly been a tech stack that is built for digital audio publishers and podcast content creators. Mm-hmm. And so we really work to provide an end-to-end stack for these kind of premium audio publishers. Obviously, that gives them the tools to be able to run their direct sold campaigns and their sponsorship campaigns, but also obviously to execute buys on private marketplace buys for their supply from a programmatic mm-hmm. standpoint. But I think that DNA... Mm-hmm. Being on the publisher side is actually quite unique. And the other thing that I think has been really different is that we actually license our technology. So we're really in the, the SaaS technology platform business for, and our customers are in the media business. So that's obviously also quite a big difference from other players, I think, in the space. And um, and what would you say? Okay, so the next question is that I like to ask this question, but how will you define uh, what you do to a five year old? How would you bring? Uh, how do would you explain to maybe my niece Amina, who's more than five at this point? Um, but how would you explain to her one the current state of the business, but also like what's your role? How do you get to service other people and shine your light? In what you do, <laughs> um, well, I'll tell you a funny story. It kind of okay. that off, but and then I can answer maybe more directly your question. So when I, um, so my kids today, I have three kids, huh? are twenty one, twenty, and fifteen. My those are my kids' ages today. Mm-hmm. When my first two, before I had my third, were three and four years old, um, they had this like I think a lot of people will remember it, but they had this like yellow and red plastic car in the backyard. Where oh, you power with your feet, you know, like <laughs> get in the yeah. and then power with their feet. <laughs> and I remember watching them one weekend, and they're like powering with their feet, and they're getting out, and they're going to this table, and uh-huh. they're t- pretending to talk on the phone, and then they've got like a coffee mug, and uh-huh. then they're drinking. I'm like, what are you guys doing? They're like, oh we're going to work like mommy does <laughs> because like I had taken them at the time I worked at Yahoo uh-huh. uh, in the Sunnyvale campus. And I had taken the kids to building B, which is where I worked for anyone listening that was at Yahoo at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they had these latte bars, right. Set up. So they would come with me and they would go to the latte bars and get hot chocolate. So to them, it was like, mom drives to work. She gets on the phone, she talks to people, and she drinks coffee. <laughs> and I kind of laugh because you think, well, 
How have things changed? Like, they're not that different. I mean, we do a lot more Zoom videos now than we used to. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of it is is relationships and building relationships and being able to talk to people and have them trust you and, and, and explain how things work, right? So it hasn't changed that much. Well, that's so funny. I call it the Flintstone, the Flintstone car. Um, I never grew up having those cars, but I always fantasize having them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, however, now that I have a two and a half years old and I have a husband who's really into cars, I mentioned to him, oh, I'm going to get Jay this, the Flintstone car. And he said, oh, no, she's getting the electric Jeep version. Exactly. Of, now they're like, very cool. like, I can't control her from my phone. I'm like, what in the world? What happened to making her like struggle a little bit? You know? Yeah. Um, so my third child had one of those cars, but my yeah. first you know, <laughs> her. An analog world, right? Um, yeah, but I mean, honestly, if you, you know, I would describe this to anyone, whether it was a three-year-old or an 80-year-old, if you listen to, um, podcasts, um, you will hear advertising, um, before the podcast starts in the midst of the podcast, after the podcast ends. And if you've heard any of those ads, you've actually experienced ads with technology because we insert, you know, more digital audio ads, both across audio streaming and music content, as well as in podcasts. So you've experienced it as a listener for sure. Okay. Okay. So that I did not know. Um, I know, I know that AdSwiss was very tech um, focused, you know, up to, uh, I'm not going to use the word AI, but like automation focused for podcasters. Um, so I'm, I'm glad you did that. Uh, you clarified that. And I know a few months ago, AdSwiss published, um, what was it? The state of audio technology report 2023. Mm -hmm. Are you okay? Like just letting us know. Okay. So here's what you want to know about the current state of the industry, whether you're a podcast, let's say, let's start from a brand's perspective. If it's a, yeah. it's a brand listening an agency representing brands, what are maybe three things you want them to know about where we are here as an opportunity to look at this channel, because obviously it's a placement, it's a channel for us, but um, to look at this channel as like a bigger opportunity that maybe we we're thinking about because I feel like we're missing a lot of opportunities on the brand side when it comes to audio, when it comes to anything else. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, the numbers actually show that there is a lot of missed opportunity in audio. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, I think that if you compare kind of time spent and video digital investment and then compare time spent in audio and audio digital investment, it's probably a 10x delta between the two in terms of the gap, right? So there is absolutely, I think, a tremendous amount of opportunity in the audio space, I think audio has typically been, you know, initially quite separate, right, from the mm -hmm. radio broadcast days, and it's really changing with dig digital audio. And in fact, I feel like podcast listening um, and just the tremendous success that direct response advertisers in the early days of podcast had and really realizing how effective podcast advertising was. Wow. You know, I think this is the case like throughout the history of digital media, when you see direct response advertisers spending hundreds of millions, billions of dollars, like they've gone from testing something to realizing that it converts and it delivers results. Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, after maybe a five-year period, and we've sort of passed this now in the podcast space, 
that's when brands realize, okay, this this medium is really effective and we need to figure out how to make it to work on our metrics and the way we think about buying advertising so we can compare between our different, you know, multi-channels that we're marketing on. And so I feel like podcast is really put audio on the map in a bigger way across a more diverse set of advertisers. We're particularly saw this year, um, t- I mean, on our platform, just into our marketplace, there were more than 700 new buyers into that marketplace this year who started testing. And some of this is what I'm seeing is from um, like CTV advertisers, video advertisers who are realizing, hey, I can actually extend my buys and my audiences into audio formats mm-hmm. and do it in the same way I'm addressing these different households, mm-hmm. um, but have a different way that my creative is experienced and a different listener experience. I mean, a ton of audio is obviously you have your earbuds in and it's very one-to-one. You're in your car. You know, some of it's multi more similar CTV where it's a connected home device, but I think, um, you know, I think we have seen a lot of non-traditional radio buyers, I'll call them, starting to really see the value in audio. I like that. And, yeah. yeah. And and do you think, okay, so you know for OTT, CTV, you know, TV, there is a lot of conversation about how, you know, traditional TV is continuing to decrease compared digital TV, streaming TV, whatever you want to call it these days, um, yeah. net increase here and there. Is there such thing for the audio world? Is it like terrestrial radio? <laughs> Same thing is happening. Yeah. Same thing is yeah. happening. So okay. like um, if you look cute. at any of your, yeah, if you look at any of the major broadcasters yeah. in the US, they'll have growth on the digital side of their business, but they will have softness and decline on their more traditional linear radio properties. So there's absolutely a move coming over, but I think audio to some extent has just exploded beyond what radio used to do. So there's much more opportunity, which is why I think we're also seeing a lot of the video and more traditional digital buyers expanding into audio because obviously the amount of time that consumers are spending on listening to digital audio experiences in large part because the explosion of such great content on the podcast side, right. right. Has really kind of changed the way from radio listening where it was like, Oh, I predominantly listened in my car to in now car. I've got it on my phone. Right. I have it with me all the time. Yeah. I have it on my connected home devices. So it's, it's really, I think expanding the way people think about, um, how do I reach consumers in those listening experiences that can be very intimate and very impactful in terms of my campaigns? And, um, okay. And so would you think that if, if a brand is investing in CTV and OTT, they should absolutely 1000% invest in audio? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. I think that um, audience extensions from CTV into audio make a ton of sense because yeah. you're going to people at different moments of the day and different like listening experiences. Mm-hmm. I think what's going to be interesting to me even though is maybe this is controversial, maybe it's not, but this is already happening. I don't know how much more it will happen, but how many of the video experiences would be better served as audio experiences? So think about like on the mobile app side, this already started happening, right? Where People are starting to leverage 
audio ads when whatever the experience is, I'm listening to music, right? I'm on an audio Mac app and I'm listening to music streaming, right? From my favorite DJ. Mm -hmm. And that image is no longer in the foreground. It's in the background. You're doing something else on your phone. You're just listening to the music in the background. That's a better placement for an audio ad than a video ad that's measured on viewability. And I think this, this kind of play is going to continue to happen across all types of devices. There's some devices on the connected home side, right, that don't have a visual experience, but there's many devices that have a visual experience. But the question is, is the consumer using the visual experience or would the creative be more impactful if you ensured that your message was actually in the audio, that your brand had an audio brand to it, right? Like a voice. Um, So anyway, I think it'll be interesting as this plays out. I think there's a lot of upside still in the audio industry for buyers to really start to figure out when is it better for me to potentially make sure I'm using kind of audio first creatives um, and taking advantage of really making sure that I'm getting the attention from the listeners um, and not relying on visuals that they may not be using. Mm, that's so deep. Okay. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so from a, I think we were about the original question was three things that you would want the brands to know. So let's recap three things you want the, we want the brands to know, and maybe three things you want a potential listener to know about podcasting because it's really huge, right? You just mentioned how podcasting has shifted some of the behavior or influenced some of the behavior. So let's go to the the three things you want brands to to remember? Um, one, <laughs> I would say is that audio inventory is as addressable as video inventory. I think there's mm-hmm. a lot of confusion on that. Right. I think okay. you see the CTV buyers buying programmatically into audio inventory. They're able to use a lot of those same household graphs that they kind of optimized for their CTV buying, they're able to use that in the same way into audio. So I think that has been a misconception. Sure. Um, and I think that would be probably the number one thing I'd love them to, to know. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I would say, and this maybe is for less the CTV buyers, but more the original um, radio buyers who have spent a lot of time and understand audio and transitioned a lot of that money into digital that the creative they use for audio streaming mm-hmm. inventory that could be you know radio stations um, that are being listened to digitally that could be music streaming services that that creative is very different than what a listener on the podcast side expects oh okay. right like you often in the audio streaming creative may have like background music that plays that kind of fits a user experience, but that's very jarring in a podcast. Um, podcast ads are usually very informative sounding and kind of more um, high level sponsorship oriented or may, uh, um, you know, leverage a, a sponsorship voice or a host read voice. So they kind of blend into a talking experience versus a music experience, right? Okay. Um, so I would just say that there is unique creative between streaming and podcast would maybe be my my second major source of advice to the buyers. Uh-huh. Um, and then I would just say like, 
you know, I, I do think that a majority of premium content is now available programmatically. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a really big year for podcast programmatic growth. It was already a big part of the music streaming um, and kind of other forms of aud- audio streaming uh, inventory. Um, but now I think there's nothing that prevents you from being able to reach that audience effectively by using, um, you know, programmatic buys. Mainly it's private marketplace buys or programmatic guaranteed buys. And that's probably my third piece of advice. That Those are really great. Um, thank you for for clarifying and demystifying a few of those myths we have on the bus side. Um, I attended the Navigator Conference in New York. That's a conference held by the Bueller Tech. And um, a lot of the publishers were advocating for direct deals over programmatic. From a revenue perspective, I think would be the number one reason. And for more of a personalization, custom- customizable you know, experience, I would say, uh, for a second reason. Do you feel or do you see that it's similar on the audio, audio side? And again, the part yeah. I'm talking about our website, base apps, things like that. What is your Yeah, take? so a majority of spending for mm-hmm. audio inventory is still executed on an I.O. basis. Mm, um, okay. So that is a majority. It's a, I think CTV has a much higher percent on the audio, on the programmatic side than audio today. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the one thing, while we have some technology to automate host reads, I think a lot of the sponsorship and kind of host read yeah. buys on the podcast side are still executed on a direct basis, and those can be extremely effective. Yeah. Um, but what we're seeing on programmatic, which has really risen significantly this year in terms of spend, is that sometimes it's the minimums to spend on the direct side, particularly if you're doing host reads, can be quite high. Um, and you ha- and you, if you're a first-time buyer in audio, those can be a bit difficult sometimes to say, okay, I'm going to buy this one show with this one host for a hundred thousand dollars, right? That's a lot to like cough up in the beginning. And so there's a lot of smaller brands or just new brands kind of testing audio that are able to do it on the programmatic side with like less overall budget commitment. So it can be a good way to, if you're new to audio, it -hmm. can be a good way to kind of get into audio, start testing it and then make decisions of, okay, do I want to start buying some of the amazing assets that may just be sold on the direct side um, or do I, is this working for me? Right. And, and, you know, it just depends on the buyer, what the budget they have, what their goals are, what makes sense. But that is great. And actually got me into one last question before the closing segment. Um, not so much. What are your projections for 2024 on, um, uh, but a big conversation around after when we put OTT aside, because that's a big conversation, a big conversation is cookies deprecation. As, as much as I hate bringing it up. Yeah. Um, I know you mentioned that a lot of what we we do on the other side is addressable. It's, it's you know, you can really get targeted down to that household. Um, and so what are, 
what are some prediction in terms of like first party data in terms of even like should audio can be can continue being looked at or considered as a contextual targeting extension or um how are you looking at data audience targeting because that's um yeah super 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 important part of what a buyer does is audience targeting data targeting exactly what's like your pre-prediction your point of view on on that topic of you know how can we now not only contextually target uh via audio inventory but how can we make sure we're targeting that audience as relevantly as possible yeah I think these are really good questions for 2024 and very top of mind from what I saw in the IAB mm-hmm. recent kind of board meeting slides on what buy- buyers are thinking about and concerns they have or areas of focus. Um, I think audio's in a pretty good spot and certainly investments in our platform have been preparing for a lot of these changes. I feel like there's sort of two key things going on. One is premium publishers absolutely have many of them, not everyone, but many of them have continued to work on their own first party data strategies so that on our platform where they have first party data, they're able to leverage that um, for their buyers to be, you know, to be able to use. And so we make sure on the platform that we're able to effectively integrate that first party data from the premium publishers and that buyers can, can buy against that where it's available. The other thing we've done is we've invested in a ton of contextual targeting capabilities. Okay. The biggest is a partnership we have with Comscore where we offer predictive audiences for podcasts. Mm. Podcast is a little tougher on first-party data for everyone because obviously there's a third-party player like an Apple podcast or yeah. a or Overcast where consumers listen to that content. So it's really important to have contextual targeting for that inventory. And the nice thing about podcast is it's pretty niche content. I mean, I think if you're a podcast listener, you tend to listen to podcasts in the areas in your life that you're obsessed with. You know, you want like more information than what just is generally available kind of at a surface level. I don't know. I'm a sports person. So I listen to a tremendous number of sports podcasts, particularly on the NBA. Uh And it's like, I want to know what everyone's saying beyond what's just the normal press, right? And that tends to be a very podcast, like listener mentality. It's like represents the passions of your life, you know? And, um, and so we actually transcribe (laughs) millions of podcasts and make sure that we know the full context of all that's being said on that podcast. And then we can turn, we work with Comscore to have that turned into these predictive audiences and those do not rely on cookies. It does take into some value on the first party data that Comscore has on their survey panel and combines it with this in-depth um, understanding of what those consumers are listening to. And then it has contextual targeting segments available for buyers to spend on. We've seen a really big increase in the usage of those segments. Um, so I think buyers this year did start understanding they need to test things besides third-party data segments that are likely to go down in scale mm-hmm. in 2024. And um, and so I kind of feel like it's it's 
it's yeah. the two sides right now. Right, it's right. the first party side and it's the contextual targeting side that people are investing more on. Oh, uh, and you know, this, I know I said it in the last question, but you're, you're, this whole conversation just made me think about one last thing. Cause right now the big thing is MFA. Um, made for advertising. I like the term made for arbitrage. And it, I'm quoting somebody in Digiday and I should probably remember her name, but anyway. Um, we are struggling on the on that side of the water. Like what is considered MFA, but not so much like we know what MFA is according to the John's Media definition. But as a buyer, when you're downloading, which I work a lot about with a trader and I'll use 30 seconds to let the, the listeners know that we have a program, it's called the Reach and Frequency course. And the program takes you from fundamentals to optimization. And during the optimization part, we have live reports that every, every single person in the cohort gets optimized. And so the best way we optimize when time is not allowed or optimization is probably not as valued as it should be where they work, is that we look at the site list and then we determine if we exclude or include the site list moving forward based on very black and white KPIs. That's how we make decision. If CNN.com um, is very high CPM, um, very low return, and CNN.com, please, it is just a simple example, a simple example for the sake of this example. But if CNN isn't working, we literally exclude them based on those KPIs and based on maybe their overall objectives. So when it comes to audio, what, what, how do you define brand safety? How do you define transparency? Do y'all have <laughs> MFA challenges? You know, even though it's not site-based, do you have content-based challenges? Which for me, it's even weird to ask, but like, what's the, in 30 seconds and less, and like, what's, that's the brand safety status or transparency status when, uh, when it comes to audio inventory? Yeah, so very similar to predictive audiences, when we take those transcripts, those full transcripts, mm -hmm. we also work with Comscore to enable them to score against brand safety mm -hmm. each of those podcasts based on exactly what's being said in the podcast from the transcripts. Mm -hmm. And then you can actually layer on whatever brand safety guidelines you have and run your buy. And I would say the whole, in terms of transparency, that was a big focus um, a year ago, I think that the inventory now has really, like at least on the podcast side, you're talking about show level transparency now, not just publisher level networks, right? Which is not, when it comes to brand safety, like a network can have tons of shows about tons of things. It doesn't mean anything. So now everything's kind of at the show level on transparency, mm -hmm. has visibility to these transcripts and has the ability to support the brand safety segments that right. you that's yeah, so it's been a big, big year for sure. Yeah, and and again, we we it's it's a little messy on the sites and pub side, but I appreciate that it's down to the show level, and um, I think that's super important. And I think as a buyer, that's what I was hoping to hear, and what I was hoping to, and how we make decisions, right? And so it is an absolute honor to have you on the podcast, Anne. And I want to ask you this. Um, just to leave us with your 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 word of wisdom here, what is something you learned um, in this industry that maybe you wish you knew as a freshman, as as your freshman self? What is something yeah. so now that you wish you knew when you first started, whether it was in 1996 or in the early 2000s, what you mentioned earlier? 
Yeah. So, um, so my kids, as I said, are 21, 20 and 15 okay. and our baby, the 15 year old now, uh-huh. um, I think I would have had her earlier, but I was trying to like plan that pregnancy around my job at the time. And in the end, my, you know, because the company is not planning its no. acquisitions or its financial plan or, you know, it, it's, you know, changes in workforces around you having a family. Uh-huh. And so in the end, my, I, you know, I, I had her a year later because I was like, oh, that'll be better for my career. So let's wait a year. And in the end, it was probably worse. I should have just had her a year earlier. Mm. And so I always like to tell people like, oh, whatever you're doing in your family, in your life, like you should do that independent from your career. It'll work out. And I think, you know, you can't count on whatever your thinking is going to happen is really what's going to, you can't see the future for any company you're working at. And so you might as well just like plan your own family. And so that's, I think the advice I always like to give people, um, cause it's hard. You always have these trade-offs, right. Between, especially uh, w- women that have the babies and go over to leave and men do too, but no, of course. Um, yeah, but I, I think that's the one thing I, I, I tell people in terms of advice. If I had known that earlier, we'd probably have less of a space between our first and second and our third. So, um, but anyway, Oh, oh man, that's so that's so good because as women we we like to use the word relevant based on am I still relevant professionally because I've taken a few months off to take care of the kids or my maternity leave was a year long in Canada. Apparently they have a whole year maternity leave. And their concern is that am I still relevant? And next next thing you know, I'm like, most of us had four or six weeks of maternity. This is great. Um, but I appreciate you normalizing this conversation and also giving anybody that's listening permission to just go after your own heart, except, you know, instead of what you think your job is going to be or not be. Um, so thank you. Thank you, Anne, for coming by. This was very, very, this is very, very, um, cool because, um, like I said, I really wanted to, I was looking forward to learning more about the audio streaming. And as I'm consulting some of the clients, they always ask about, what about audio? What about CTV? Exactly. How does that work? And God, I'm glad to hear it. They're finally asking. That's no, great. they're asking. They're asking. I'm always like, I've, I've used it as several, you know, upper to mid funnel, but I'm pretty sure you can even layer as a lower funnel. And maybe that's the conversation for us next time you come by. But thank you so much. And we appreciate you. Before we leave the podcast, if anybody needs to reach you or somebody on your team, where can they do that? And uh, frisbee at adswiz.com. I'm reachable anytime you want for sure. Sweet. And her email, her information will be on the show notes right below this video or in your audio podcast platforms that you listen to. So again, thank you. Thank you so much, Anne. Thanks so much. It's really nice spending time with you.